Today we turn in God's Word to Romans chapter 5 and verses 12 through 21. We begin a short sermon series today on the covenant of marriage. So Lord willing, in the weeks ahead, we'll be looking at various texts in both the Old and the New Testament that talk about the covenant of marriage. Today, Romans 5. Hear now God's word. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many." And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous." Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So far the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it to us today by his Holy Spirit. Loved ones, the Bible begins with a wedding in Genesis 2. It ends with the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation. The Bible is one big plan of redemption, God's plan to save a sinful people for himself through Jesus. Paul himself, not only in Romans 5, but in 1 Corinthians, talks of death through the first man, Adam, who was from the earth, a man of dust. Life through the last Adam, the one from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. Imagine two columns, kids. Under Adam, you have disobedience, sin, condemnation, and death. Under Christ, you have obedience, righteousness, justification, and eternal life. Adam's sin is like a cancer that affects all of our souls unto death. 
But in Jesus, every cancerous cell is replaced by life-giving cells unto eternal life. This text tells us that every person who has ever lived or will ever live stands in relationship to one of these two men, Adam or Christ. Either one belongs to Adam under death, or by grace through faith, one belongs to Christ and has eternal life. Covenant theology, which is the theology of Romans 5, is the theology of the Bible. Reformed theology is covenant theology. And this has implications for all of life, including, as we'll see today, our relationships and our marriages. If you're single today, you think, what does a series on marriage have to do with me? I hope you'll see that this text applies to us in every form of relationship that we have. As we look today at Paul's covenant theology, gushing forth like a stream that just picks up momentum and grows as it continues. First, death through Adam. Romans 5.12, do you see that, kids? Talks of one man. Who is that one man? Well, that one man is Adam. Paul is bringing us back here to Genesis 2, where God created Adam, how? From the dust of the ground. Where God gave Adam not only a body, but a soul. God made Adam in his image. God breathed life into him. Children, like when you're going up to a fire and you're blowing on it to cause the flame to grow. God placed Adam and Eve, who are real historical people, in a real historical place called the Garden of Eden. Genesis is real history. God enters into a covenant with Adam in the Garden of Eden, a covenant that has blessings and curses, where God is the sovereign initiator. In this covenant in Genesis 2, there was no sin that had to be overcome yet. Remember, Adam wasn't lacking anything. He was made in perfect righteousness and true holiness. And Eden was not just some ordinary garden. As Gregory Beale says, it was the dwelling place of God, the first temple, a territorial place where all was holy before God. And Adam had things to do in Eden. He was in what the Westminster Confession calls a covenant of works, where life was promised to Adam, and in him to all his posterity, that means those that would be born after him, upon condition of his perfect and personal obedience. Adam was under probation, not in the sense that you're busted, but in the idea that you have a job and you're seeing how well you'll do. He wasn't stuck there without a purpose. He had a task to extend the garden and to subdue the entire earth, not to destroy the earth, but that the whole earth would be turned into a beautiful garden to multiply, to fill it. This means the experience of fellowship with God Love and devotion between God and man would be experienced in perfection in every square inch of the earth. The Garden of Eden then was not the end. It was the beginning. 
Adam was to work it, to keep it, meaning he wasn't just to sit back. There were trees in the garden, and God's first word in Genesis 2 is a word not of being stingy, but permissive. Adam is free to eat from all these trees in the garden, any of these trees, lavish, overflowing. Adam had work to do, which means work was given by God to Adam before the fall. Adam was to guard the garden. That's an interesting word in Genesis 2, meaning he was to protect it from defilements. And, as Genesis 2.17 says, he was told he must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was not an arbitrary command. It was a summary of all the obligations Adam had, a way of focusing his obedience in this particular area. It was a judicial tree. It's a test. To eat of that tree would be an act of moral autonomy. To say, I'm God. I'm going to decide what's right or wrong. The penalty was death. What happened? Well, Genesis 3 happened. The focal point of the probation comes when Satan enters the garden. Adam gives ear to the word of the devil. He looks within. He wants to be God. And he goes from being crowned with glory and honor to being naked and ashamed. Sin is always reckless. It's foolish. It takes away rather than adding to our lives. And instead of the world becoming a sphere of fellowship with God, it's now a wilderness. Creation is groaning in pains of childbirth. Because, as Romans 5.12 says, sin came into the world through that one man. What does that mean? Well, Romans 5.12 goes on. It says, because all sin. Do you see that? That is one of the most important phrases in your Bible. What does that mean, because all sins? A man named Pelagius, who debated Augustine in the fourth century, said that, well, this is just talking about our individual sin. So Adam sinned, yes, but then we imitate Adam when we sin. So we kind of follow his bad example. Throughout church history, Pelagius has been deemed, rightly, a heretic. Others, a semi-Pelagian view, the Roman Catholic view, the, the view of Wesleyans and Arminians, and probably most American evangelicals without maybe realizing it. The semi-Pelagian view says, because of Adam's sin, we have a bent towards evil. We're somewhat depraved. We have a corrupt heart. The Augustinian view, Augustine, says that when Adam sinned, he didn't sin as an isolated individual. The fact that he sinned impacts us because of who he was. Adam was our federal head, our representative, the covenant head of the entire human race. When he breaks the covenant of works, he brings sin into the world. So Adam's sin and guilt is imputed to all of us. It's reckoned to us, credited to us. Adam represents all of us under the covenant of works. 
So we now are born sinful. In Adam's fall, sinned we all, with his guilt and also with corruption. Romans 5 goes on and talks about this in many different ways in these, these verses, doesn't it? If you look at the end of verse 12, there's a dash. You see that? Meaning, Paul doesn't finish or, or pick up that thought again until verse 18. Everything from 13 to 17 is kind of parenthesis. He says, judgment followed Adam's sin and brought condemnation, verse 16. Verse 18, the result of his trespass, condemnation for all men. Verse 19, in Adam's sin, every one of us was constituted a sinner. Now, you might say, that doesn't sound fair. I wasn't there when Adam sinned. I I didn't have an opportunity to decide this for myself. Well, like Ligon Duncan says, there are a lot of patterns in the Bible that show this principle of representation. Kids, you remember David and Goliath? If David wins the battle, Israel wins. If Goliath wins, the Philistines win. Representation. How about David again when he takes the census? 1 Chronicles 21. He wants to see how many people he has. He's proud. God gave him a number of options as a result of his sin. Do you want famine? Do you want the war from other nations? David decided the judgment of God himself. 70,000 citizens of Jerusalem died. Pharaoh, when he opposes God, all the people in Egypt were impacted. So because we're in Adam, we bear responsibility, we are accountable to God. This is called original sin. Our nature is fallen. We are pervaded by sin. Our nature is corrupt. We are totally depraved. Meaning the problem is far deeper than we realize. And it can't be fixed by turning over a new leaf or making a New Year's resolution or just kind of trying harder. We need rescue from outside. What else came as a result of Adam's sin? Verse 12. Death spread to all men. Paul says in verse 15, Many died because of Adam's sin. Verse 17, death reigned through that one man. So we die because of sin. We die because of Adam's sin, which is what God said in Genesis 2. Adam, in the day you eat of it, that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Literally, dying, you will die. Spiritual death. We're born dead in sin. Physical death, every person dies. Eternal death, hell, that's what Genesis is talking about. That's what Romans 5 is talking about. We're accountable before God, and death reminds us of that. This is not how God intended things to be in the beginning. When Jesus saw Lazarus dead, he cried out with anger. Jesus was snorting anger at death as he saw his dead friend. Hebrews says the unbeliever lives in the fear of death his entire life. A few years ago, Larry King, the talk show host, said that he was going to avoid death altogether. He took four human growth hormone pills every day, but in case of death, King arranged to have his body frozen 
and then thawed out once they came up with a cure for what killed him. Larry King died this past January. Paul says in verse 13, here's the proof of this. Before the law was given, sin was in the world. But according to Romans 4, people can't be lawbreakers if there's no sin to break. This is an interesting verse, isn't it? So from Adam to Moses, were people sinning? Yes. From Adam to Moses, were people dying? Yes. The law of God was given to Moses in Exodus 20, but the law written on the heart was there throughout that period of time. That's Paul's argument there in verse 13. And as you look around you, the proof of Romans 5 is everywhere. Doctor's clinics, hospitals, cemeteries. This is the world we live in. And understanding that is the first thing we understand when it comes to our marriages. So many experiences here among us when it comes to marriage. Some of you married decades with great-grandchildren. Some have been divorced. Some have been divorced and remarried. Some are single and wanting to be married. Some are single and content in their singleness. Some are middle-aged with many kids. Others are just married and about to have a child. Some are married and are not able to have children. All of us from so many different places, and I'm, I'm sure I've missed some, there are people in hard marriages. We want a culture here at Emmaus Road that honors God in how we view marriage. No politician or government can define marriage. God defines it. In Genesis, he defines marriage as a covenant between one male husband and one female wife. The Bible's teaching about sexual holiness requires staying a virgin until marriage and condemns any sexual activity outside of marriage. This is how God made us. This is what's good for us. And we have to state this up front as we talk about marriage. We can't assume these things. You are also not less human if you don't get married. Jesus was never married. We want to state that as well. Romans 5 says all of our relationships exist in a broken world, including our marriages. Paul Tripp was asked this question. If you could go back 50 years ago when you were first married and tell yourself something, what would you tell yourself? Hmm. He said, I would say, Paul, your biggest problem will never be your wife. It will be you. Very true. Why the trouble in marriage? Because we're sinners. All of us have different influences on our marriages. Some of you maybe come from wonderful marriages where dad loved mom and mom loved and respected dad. Maybe you came from a broken home. Maybe you come from or are in a home now where there's a lot of yelling, a lot of pride, very little repentance. Maybe you come from a home of abuse or divorce. Maybe you were abandoned as a child or deserted. Maybe you saw mom or dad live with hardness of heart. Maybe you experienced as a kid or a, a spouse adultery. Maybe you experienced it many times. 
Maybe you and your spouse now lived together before you were married. You had sexual relations together. You maybe never talked about it much before. Maybe there's been homosexuality in your home or relationships. Pornography. Marriage, as one of our wise elders has said, is to be a covenant of dedicated love, reflecting the love of the triune God. What does pornography say about your marriage? Pornography kills love. It kills marriages. Lust is the opposite of love. Lust uses people. All these things are potential Romans 5 sinful issues in marriage. Our words. When you think about Adam's sin and how it spread, right? Think about one word said with the wrong tone, wrong timing, wrong tact, one word at the end of a day, and how that can spiral that night, that week, spiral the relationship between you and your spouse and your kids. Sometimes people have a utopian view of marriage. They think everything will be just like this. They think romance, and if he or she says the right things to me, then I'll be happy. If they get me the right things, then I'll be happy. A utopian view of marriage can destroy a marriage. Paul Tripp says this. Jill and Sam were in counseling. I didn't think it would be like this, Jill said. She looked exhausted and defeated. Sam looked angry. He didn't want to be there talking about his marriage to Jill. This is a stereotype, but I find that often the case. Not every time, but often it's the man who does not want to come to marriage counseling, who thinks everything's fine, who in pride thinks, I'm not going to do it. Not always. Back to the story. Fifteen years of marriage, he said, and this is what I get. Jill sat there and sobbed. Sam said, look at what my hard work gave you. No one you know lives in a house like yours. No one you know has the things I provided. No one has the wonderful experiences around the world I've given you. It's never enough, Jill. I'm tired of your complaining, your daily criticism. I don't want to do this anymore. I don't think you do either. Unbiblical and unloving and selfish expectations is a problem in marriage. With our expectations, we want to ask, is this fair? Is this actually what God expects? Or is this what I expect? The DNA of sin is selfishness. It's I want what I want. I want people to give it to me. I'm the center of the universe. And so many of our arguments in marriage are about that. Selfishness. As Paul Tripp says, idolatry. We are worshipers, so something captures our heart. What captures our heart determines our behavior. So in marriage, things rise in levels way beyond their importance, and that controls my words and responses. Winning an argument becomes too important. Getting my way becomes too important. Imagine if every husband and wife stopped right now and said, What is too important right now for me in my marriage? What kind of aroma does your home have? 
if someone walked into your home? Is it kind of a rude irritability kind of thing? Or is it patience and love? How about communication? Maybe that's a struggle for you. I'm listening to these things because these are all struggles we have. These are all different areas and issues that we, we need help in, need grace in. One person says something, the other doesn't like the way they say it. They're hurt, they're confused. Maybe there's a lack of trust in your marriage. Or struggling with how to share emotions with each other. How to talk honestly about hurts and feelings. Maybe there's unresolved conflict. Not all conflict is bad, we understand that. But how do we respond when conflict happens? Do we clam up? Do we fight? Do we try to escape? Do we shut down? A lot of different ways we respond. Maybe you have different expectations for physical intimacy. Maybe you haven't talked about that before. Maybe it's kind of, no one really goes there. Loved ones, you are one flesh, you and your wife. You cannot say these things are off the table. You've got to deal with the issues that we have, and we all have issues. Maybe you say, we are so different. I don't know how we can stay married. This is the sovereign plan by a sovereign God who is the definition of what is wise and good and loving and faithful and true. He's brought you together. God has done this. God makes no mistakes. So if you're struggling, I want you to know it's not shameful to reach out for help. In fact, it's humble. It's God's will. We're in a church family. Look around for another mature couple that has lived through decades that maybe you know and say, can we just talk to you? It doesn't have to be formal, but can we just talk about our struggle? Talk to me or the elders. If you think we, we need some help here, go to a good biblical counselor. Don't just look up a random counselor. And don't go to someone in the church who has a bad marriage. Don't go there. Don't go to someone in the church who's not connected to the church. Don't go there. But talk to people and know that there's a guy that we've had here before, Josh Anderson, Oasis Counseling, has done great helpful work for many over years in marriage. As we realize our struggles, we realize mature couples can help me apply the gospel of God's grace to my marriage. Because that sometimes in life we come to a point where we're so distraught and confused that we're not objective anymore that we're not seeing things clearly anymore. That's where, like the Proverbs say, we need a wise person to help us. It is mature and godly and God-glorifying to reach out for help in your marriage. It is pride, stubbornness, and hard-heartedness not to when there's an issue. And don't wait until all the alarm bells are going off. Secondly, what does Romans 5 teach us about life through Christ? Look at Romans 5.12 again. Therefore, do you see that? If we stopped the sermon at this point, it would be very depressing, wouldn't it? <laughs> but Paul says, therefore, what's he doing? He's connecting Romans 5.1 to 11 with verses 12 to 21. Jesus died for sinners, 
loved ones. He didn't come for those who are righteous. He didn't come for those who have it all together. How then can his death help me? There is an exchange, Paul says, where Jesus, the righteous one, exchanges his perfect and pure life for our unrighteousness and sin. How can that happen? That, that couldn't happen in any earthly relationship like this. Jesus dies as our substitute. This happens because of covenantal representation. Death through Adam, life through Christ. Paul says in Romans 5.14, Adam is a type of the one who is to come. Typology. In this case, it's not parallel but antithetical. Adam and Christ are similar only in how they both represent those who are in them. So in Adam, death, condemnation. In Christ, life, justification. What does this say? That God's plan from before the foundation of the world was this. That God's plan to save his people through the covenant of grace in Jesus was already there before Adam broke the covenant of works in the garden. Christ's headship in the covenant of grace was planned for all eternity. Jesus, like Adam, was in a covenant of works. Jesus, unlike Adam, kept it. What does that mean? Well, let's look at the text. Do you notice the word reign? Death reigned. Sin reigned. But in verse 21, it says grace might reign. Death and sin for the Christian no longer reign. What reigns now for you, Christian? Grace. The free gift, verse 15, of grace. The Bible is telling us here in Romans 5, you gain way more in Christ than you lost in Adam. Many trespasses, verse 16, were imputed to Christ. Remember, Adam's sin is imputed to you. All of your sins, all of your snarkiness, your irritability, my lack of love, my pride, all those sins were imputed to Christ. Adam was consigned to death for one sin. What do we deserve for millions of sins? All of our thoughts, all of those wickednesses imputed to Jesus. And, verse 20, what abounds to us is grace that overflows. Picture a river that has just burst open because of a flood. It runs everywhere. It knows no bounds. It is more abundant than sin. Who does this benefit? Adam brought death on all men. That's everyone under the covenant of works. Christ's one act of righteousness, verse 18, means justification for all men under the covenant of grace. Is Paul teaching universalism? No. Christ's righteousness is for those he represents. Who are they? Well, they are, verse 15, the many. They are, verse 17, those who receive the gift of righteousness by faith. 
In the covenant of grace, our salvation is based upon the obedience of the last Adam. He kept the law for you, Christian, which means if he didn't, you would have to. When he kept the law for you, his active obedience is imputed to you as the ground of your justification. Just like Adam was to keep the commands of God positively and not break them. So Christ did not break them, but he kept them. He earned our righteousness. He accomplished our redemptive work. He fulfilled the demands of the covenant. He paid the debt of sin. So he keeps the law. He keeps that covenant of works Adam broke. He says on the cross in John 19, it is finished. It means the fulfillment of the covenant of works. If you are in Christ, you're not under that covenant. You are now under the covenant of grace. By faith alone, trusting in the one who has met the demands of God, who in his passive obedience, his sufferings, his death, has taken the curse of our sin on himself. Adam's sin imputed to us. Our sin imputed to Jesus. Jesus' righteousness imputed to us. There was a man saying to another guy, it wasn't fair that Adam represented me. I wasn't there in the Garden of Eden. And this man very gently said, were you there for the work of the last Adam, Christ, when he was living for you? when he was suffering for you, when he was dying for you, when he was rising again from the dead for you. Dear Christian, there are only two covenant heads, Adam and Christ. Adam's covenant headship was unique. Through him, all mankind fell. Christ now, for the Christian, is our federal head for both men and women. Husbands are not covenant heads. The success or failure of a husband is not imputed to the wife or the children. The husband is not the mediator between God and man. Women, you don't have to say, I got to pray through my husband to get to God. The husband doesn't represent Christ to his wife in a priestly way. The Bible never says all women submit to all men. These are some things we're going to get into as we go forward here. So you say, well, what does Ephesians 5 mean? The husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. Paul turns head on its head there. You would expect the head to be the one who is the boss, the one that everyone else bows down to, the one that everyone else serves. But Paul says in terms of Christianity, that's not the way it is at all. The husband sacrifices himself for the wife. The head serves the body. This is a shocking reversal that no one would have expected in Paul's day. The head is willing to die for the body because who is the head? The head is Christ. Jesus himself who hears our prayers, our struggles, our temptations. Every husband falls short here. But the pattern of Christ's authority is he's not a bully, he's not lazy, he's not an ogre, he's not tyrannical. He never demands. A wife loves to respect 
a husband who loves her like Christ loves the church. One wife told her husband, Dear, I know that you're willing to die for me. You've told me that many times. But while you're waiting to die, could you just fill in some of the time and help by doing the dishes? (laughs) That's what this gets at, right? Men, how can you serve your wife like this? Say to her on Thursday night when the ladies' Bible study is going on, I'll take care of the kids, I'll make dinner, I'll clean up, go to the study. Don't worry about what happens when you get home. The house may not look great, but I'll try. <laughs> our house does not look great when my wife comes home after our Thursday night study. It's not good. I'm kind of like a zombie. I'm, she walks in the door, I'm kind of staring, like, not good. So I've got to work on this, right? <laughs> what does headship look like? It's servant-hearted leadership. Going out of your way, husbands, to do something sacrificial for your wife. Husbands, never demand to your wife, submit to me. Just never say that. And we are to not think that way. We are to love her, not demanding something from her. We are to nourish and cherish her. We are to pray for her. And one thing we can do now as we go forward in this series together is go home and talk to each other about our marriage and family. Or talk to someone else in the church, even better, about how things are going. Talk about the aroma in our home. Where are we struggling? Because we all struggle in different areas. Where are those areas that we've never talked about that we maybe need a wise biblical counselor to help us with? What are we modeling for our kids? What do our kids see in our marriage that they would want and we would want them to imitate in their future marriage? This is not legalism. This is heart change. This is the Holy Spirit. This is the gift of grace. That's what you have in Jesus, loved ones. Rescuing grace. You're not alone in the struggle. You have a church family that can help you. You have the Holy Spirit living in you. Jesus came so that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for him who loved us and gave himself for us. So we don't look to our spouse for our identity or our kids, or our job, but it's in Jesus. And change is a process. That's what we're talking about here, right? What areas in our marriages and relationships need to change? That's sanctification. That's the work of God's Spirit and by His grace. Patience is the name of the game. So as you talk to each other, We pray, like Ephesians 4 says, for grace to speak a word that is uplifting and edifying. There are times that I just need to not talk and go somewhere and pray. That when I'm tempted to respond, I need to just walk out of the room, pray, and then come back and talk more gently. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Forgiveness. What things in your life through the work of Jesus, do you need to talk to your spouse about and ask forgiveness for? Repentance. We're all going to sin. We're all going to mess up. We all need the daily grace of Jesus Christ all the time. And even this area, loved ones, confrontation. When someone begins to confront us, what do we naturally do? Our chest tightens. 
our ears get red, we have the inner lawyer come out and we want to defend ourselves. That's the response of the, la- of the first Adam. That's who we once were in Adam, but not anymore. In Christ, we don't have to defend ourselves. Jesus has paid the penalty already for the darkest and most evil sins of our hearts. And so, dear Christian, those who are single, those who are married, those who are widowed, those who are divorced, those who are longing to be married one day, those who are struggling in every way, remember Romans 5, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray, as Ephesians tells us, that all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander would be put away from us, along with all malice. We pray by your Spirit that we would be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other as God in Christ forgave us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.